one of the best ways to make shifts or see change occur is to get to the thoughts and challenge them in a realistic way, not just slap on some flowery affirmation that doesn't feel real, but really look at, you know, is this thought, like I had said, like, I can't write. And, you know, I often say to my clients, do you have proof or evidence to support this negative thought? And a good majority of the time they say, when they really look at it, they say no, right? They're just these assumptions that have been made. But when you speak with an individual with ADHD, they've got proof. They've got evidence to support these thoughts. And so what I do is I ask my clients, but how old is that proof or evidence? How far back does that go? And once we start seeing that, wow, this thought is from childhood, I can't do math, I can't do writing, we buy into these thoughts and we take them on. And then we go about our lives believing that these are things that we can't do. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 210 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. If you're a regular listener, you likely know about my signature program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. We call it A-OK for short. This is the six-week program that I built off of my patented cartography system to help ADHD women figure out what they should do with their life. AOK includes live office hours with me, a community, the AOK system, worksheets, the whole program. You'll create your own AOK intelligence report, and I promise you it's a lot of fun. So, one of our students, Dr. Ava Katrine, said this about AOK. Thank you so much for helping me see my potential and gain more confidence in making decisions about how I want to live my life. 
After endless sessions with psychiatrists and psychologists throughout the years, no one has ever come close to what this program has to offer. Ava is a medical doctor. I really appreciate that testimonial to the program. So we're going to start on Tuesday, January 24th. We'll have our first office hours on Wednesday, the 25th, and every Wednesday after that for the next six weeks. What a great way to start the new year. So if you sign up with the code New Year 23 all uppercase, you'll get $100 off of your ADHD brain is A-OK until the program is full. You can find more information at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK. And don't forget to use the code NEWYEAR23. I'd love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our podcast. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. And so, of course, I am just delighted to introduce you to Kristen Baird Goldman. Kristen is a licensed psychotherapist, ADHD certified clinical specialist, certified integrative mental health practitioner, registered art therapist, and neurofeedback provider with a unique perspective on the intersection of psychology and integrative wellness. Kristen recently released her first book, The CBT Workbook, for Adult ADHD. Inspired by her own experiences as an adult with ADHD and her clients, she created a friendly and encouraging workbook that examines the most common obstacles that ADHD adults encounter in their personal and professional lives and offers mindfulness and CBT-based techniques for navigating them successfully. Her philosophy and approach to therapy is strengths-based, yay, allowing individuals to discover their best selves. She has given presentations to Chad, Ada, and other organizations, local counseling professionals, teachers, and parents regarding the education and understanding of ADHD and neurodiverse individuals. Kristen lives in Los Angeles, California, with her husband, two children, dog, chickens, and a bearded dragon. Welcome, Kristen. Did I get all that right? You did, Tracy. Thank you very much. We have a bit of a menagerie going on here. (laughs) So I'm curious, how is a bearded dragon different than, say, like an iguana? So um, it is my son's COVID purchase. (laughs) (laughs) COVID pet. Yes. Um, He's actually really a really cool animal beautiful. He's called a citrine color and they just kind of hang out and, you know. Is it, is it big like an iguana or like how big is it? They can get up to two feet long. And how much do they weigh? Mm, that's a good question. Probably not much. I would maybe five pounds, maybe. Yeah, that's kind of big though. So is this the kind of animal that or the kind of reptile, right? Yes. That sits on your shoulder? Yes. Ah, okay. I'm going to have to Google that. When we were kids, my sister had an iguana and he was not very nice. And this poor, sweet, well, he wasn't sweet, but this poor iguana, he would escape. <laughs> Sometimes he'd literally be gone for days. I remember one time we found him in the closet. I don't even know how he was still alive, but we would feed him, oh my God, like, um, cocktail fruit and just the poor thing. He, you know, and I think worms, I think worms was his staple. Um, but I still, yeah. I don't know. I have a fondness for reptiles probably because of, uh, that iguana. So anyway, Kristen, um, I really want to talk about this book. 
great. It is outstanding. And so good that uh, I just decided we're going to add it to our ADHD for Smartass Women book list. But before we go there, I would love to talk just about you and ADHD and what your diagnoses looked like. Sure. So, you know, for the large part of my young adulthood, I always suspected it. You know, I was not a great student come middle school. I did really well in elementary school. Art was always my go-to. And so I was, you know, always one of the best art kids in the school. Mm. And, And so grateful that, you know, I grew up in a time where that was still important in the schools. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm not sure I would have survived middle school and high school without art class, like almost on a daily basis. And, you know, I, and I had anxiety and, you know, being a child of the seventies and eighties, nobody was looking at this. You know, I always received um, is bright, has a lot of potential, you know, but, doesn't put the work in, lazy, this, that, all of the common things that people hear. And, you know, it impacted me a great deal. And I didn't realize just how much it impacted me until I learned that I truly had ADHD. I read um, Dr. Hollowell's Driven to Distraction book in my late 30s. And I must have checked off almost everything in his very long list that he has in that book. Um, It just resonated. Do you remember what prompted you to pick up that book in the first place? I think because I, you know, I suspected it was going on and, you know, I had, I was, I always loved being with children. So out of high school, um, while in college, I worked with kids, I worked in preschools and nannied, and I became very close to one particular child and family and watched her, you know, in the 90s, discovered that she had ADHD in elementary school and sort of watched this progression, watched the whole Ritalin ups and downs. <clears throat> but I kept couldn't help but thinking like, wow, I'm seeing so much of myself in her at this age. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, I was formerly uh, an architectural designer for almost 20 years before I changed professions into psychology. And I was always fascinated by people and why people do what they do. And, you know, I was always very intuitive and reflective, even in my own behavior And, you know, in the corporate world, uh, particularly after I moved from the East Coast to California, I would hear, you need to be a little more West (laughs) Coast-like, meaning, you know, as a female, as a director in in a large organization, I, when I went to work, I was serious. Like, I did my job. I did it really well. I expected my team to do their roles, right? Like, I would send out emails as to you know, please, you know, do the following checklist items. Thank you. But they weren't flowery. I was direct. Yeah. And my directness cost me a lot in in the corporate world, uh, particularly in a very male-dominated profession. 
it was a challenge. You know, it's, I have found and I have helped my clients see, you know, how to play the game when you have ADHD and you work in some sort of corporation, you know, the, the, we are very good at taking bird's eye approach and, you know, seeing the big picture of what's working and what's not working. You know, we are excellent problem solvers and we want to come up with solutions, but most of the time upper management doesn't want to hear it. Um, and that, that was sort of the final, I was already, um, thinking about going back to school. I minored in psychology in my undergrad. Um, and, you know, I thought, you know, something, why do I keep getting this feedback that I need to be softer, um, (laughs) in the workplace? And, and it was, it was really upsetting me. And then, you know, when I was in graduate school, and, you know, we had spent a little time on ADHD, but it really resonated. And so I explored it further, went to a psychiatrist and said, look, this is what I think is going on. And at this point, I'm 41. And unfortunately, not with the with any real discerning diagnosis protocol, he said, yep, you've got ADHD. And since then, I, you know, I have backed it up with real legitimate um, assessments, but it was a relief and sadness all at the same time. Where did the sadness come from? It came from years of, I wish somebody knew. I wish we had caught this earlier. And it took me a little bit of time to really kind of work that out through, with my own therapist and myself of really getting to the place of, we can't get in time machines. I can't go back. You know, in some aspects, I figured it out. You know, I went to college, I went to graduate school, I did really well. I found out that I am actually like what would be considered a twice exceptional student. I'm gifted as well as with specific learning disabilities and with the ADHD. And, you know, I, I just, I learned to empower myself of, okay, these, you know, I'm fortunate that my ADHD is more on the, what we consider probably more on the mild side of the spectrum. Um, but I owe a lot of that to maybe perhaps some of it not knowing early on and not focusing on what was wrong so yeah. much. And I'm a very driven individual and I thank my mother for that because she was very driven and motivated person. I mean, yes, obviously I, you know, feel what many feel of days of, I don't want to, I call it the, I don't want us and the anxiety probably helped me in some aspects get stuff done at the end of the day. But, you know, I certainly had to spend some time working on, you know, looking back at, you know, wow, the amount of negative messages I received as a young person, even as a young adult, and even into my 40s in the corporate workplace were traumatic. So can you talk a little bit about some of those negative messages? Sure. Those negative messages, you know, we all hear, I think it's been calculated scientifically that children hear about 20,000 in their childhood when ADHD is not recognized. And it is the constant, sometimes you're too much, too loud, too 
boisterous or not motivated, lazy. I heard lazy a lot growing up, particularly in my house. My mom was a significant doer. And I had, even to this day, I have guilt if I'm just sitting around the house. Like I always have to be doing and going. Sometimes to my detriment, uh, I've gotten much better over the years of recognizing that. But, you know, the negative aspects were constantly hearing you don't fit in some Mm -hmm. aspect. And it is so true how this really is a disorder, and I don't even like to use that word, but of being misunderstood. Unless someone truly has it, there's no other way to understand it. Because of that consistent inconsistency, right? Why can you do some things so well and other things you can't seem to get out of the gate? And the things that you can't seem to get out of the gate on are usually the easiest things. So frustrating. It's so frustrating. So do you think, looking back... um, do you think your mom has or had ADHD? Both I don't my know parents, if she's still around. Uh, both my parents have passed. Um, my dad definitely had mm-hmm. ADHD. There's no doubt. And it's interesting because my parents' relationship wasn't the greatest. And my relationship with my mom growing up wasn't the greatest. And I had the same traits my dad had that drove my mom crazy. Oh, interesting. But- I also think that she may have possibly also had it in the sense that there were notes everywhere, all over the house, just post-it note, well, before even post-it, but just like legal pad notes. If my mom would go on vacation, it was like a book of notes of what we all need to do, what she needs to do during her day. And yeah. I, I think she kind of knew that if, if she didn't have all this stuff written down, she wasn't going to get it done. So there was there was definitely something going on there for her. But my dad is 100% was definitely ADHD. And what about siblings? Do you have them? I do. I'm the youngest of three. Um, we're all four years apart. So being the youngest, you know, I was basically an only child for a while. But it is definitely in the family it is so much in my husband's family, along with autism on my husband's side of the family. So I think being surrounded by neurodiversity was something that really was the inspiration for me to create this niche in my, in my field of, I'm very passionate about it. I want children and adults to really feel understood and seen and not have to go through these traumatic negative messaging and have a way to, you know, really understand themselves. Absolutely. So I'm curious, Kristen, once you were diagnosed, what changed? How I saw myself. You know, I started to recognize the bright, gifted person Uh, that black and white paper said that I was. Um, (laughs) And I was able to start to get a better understanding of, okay, I could see why, like in the workplace, I could see why I was hearing that, 
Uh, but at the same time, being less West Coast-like got me to a pretty elevated place on the corporate ladder in my profession pretty quickly. Like I was one of the youngest design directors around. And it's interesting when I lived on the East Coast, particularly Philadelphia and New York, I never heard those comments ever <laughs> yeah. um, until I came here. And I think that part of that is just cultural but the other aspect of it, you know, when I thought if I had to go back and would I do it differently? And I'm not so sure I would. I think what I would do differently probably is maybe find a different approach, a different way of conveying the information of what I thought could be better. I think because there was passion behind my voice, it came out as like negative comments yeah. Um, but you know, could I change the passion behind my voice if I were mindful about it? Yes. But at the same time, I think passion helps us get stuff done and helps convey a message. Um, you know, if you have a passionate teacher in the classroom, a student is going to be more engaged and interested. And the people that worked under me, my specific team loved that about me and never had an issue with that. It was, you know, my peers around me that, you know, sometimes thought it was too much or I was being, uh, pointing out the negatives. I'm curious though, were the men given those same critiques or was no. this also a, uh, so it was a standard that you were held to because you were female? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely hit the glass ceiling more uh, than once when I came here. Got it. Got and it. that really frustrated me to the point where I was like, okay, I'm done. Um, you know, like, I, I mean, I was also more business and politics than it was me designing, you know, as I mm -hmm. uh, worked up the ranks. And I thought this, the feedback is not being supportive. Um, you know, women were still considered, you know, frankly, a bitch if we were strong in yeah. the workplace. And I didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And it wasn't worth the stress. And having had my first child at that point, I thought, you know, there's, there's more. There's more I want to be doing. My mom always told me when I was younger, you're going to have more than one profession in your life. And in many ways, she was very much ahead of herself in her thinking. And she was right. And, you know, and I thought at 40, I'm going to go make this big career change. But for me, it wasn't really that much. It was still, you know, working with people, still using the creative strengths of my brain in just a different way. Thank you. So let's talk about the CBT workbook for adult ADHD. So why this book and why now? So I was actually approached by the publishing company, um, the, the company that owns Rockridge Press uh, is Callisto Media, and they put in, they use a set of algorithms to find out what books people are looking for. What do they type in in search engines and what are they not finding? And um, they contacted me as well as many others that came up in their algorithm search of 
who would be a good fit to write this type of book. And then I went through the interviewing process and the writing sample process, and then I was selected to write this book because this book is basically what I do every day with my clients. And so it, it, you know, I wrote this book in four months and, you know, had all the fears that anyone would have about writing a book, particularly having ADHD and dysgraphia. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. It's so hard. It's so hard. I always struggled getting my thoughts in writing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and making them linear, right? That yes. is the hardest part. Yes, very much so. I was always a good creative writer, storyteller, yes. right? Yes. So, so you have this sense that I'm a really good writer, but then when you go to write, especially a nonfiction book, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. But, you know, what helped me, I think, was one, having the accountability, right? That is such an important thing and so hard to create for yourself as an adult. So I had, you know, the editors saying, you know, milestone one, you have this much time and checking in and sending it in. Um, And so it created a sense of urgency, each milestone. And once I got into it and started realizing like, this is what I'm saying is what I say every day. Yeah. And so it didn't need to be, I, I, I got out of my head, my childhood fears of, oh my God, I'm not good at this. And historically, I've never been good at this. Yeah. Particularly grammar rules and, you know, punctuation <laughs> and all of those things. But I impressed myself in the sense of like, I don't think I should say that anymore. I don't think that I should be putting out there or telling myself, I can't do this anymore. Yes, it was hard but I would do it again and plan on doing it again in a different, not workbook way, a little bit, but something a little different. But it was really, really gratifying to have this kind of accomplishment with somebody with an executive function system like ours. So can I ask you, did that gratification come more towards the end? Were there times in the middle where you thought, what the hell am I doing? I hate this. Yes. <laughs> okay. You're giving me hope. Can in I fact, also say, though, you absolutely, you know, after reading this book, can do this. It is so well written. It is so well written for the ADHD brain. And I think what I love most, so I love the beginning where you talk about, you know, what is ADHD exactly? And you make it so approachable, but then all of the different exercises and the way the book has been divided up into chapters, they are all so simple and straightforward. And oh my gosh, anybody can do this. You know, I I don't mean anybody can write this book because I don't think that's true at all, but (laughs) anybody can do these exercises and you can really see how over time or frankly, even just doing one of them, how they can make a huge difference. Thank you. That was my whole um, intent for this book. You know, I have, as a clinician, it's funny, you know, looking back on this this no one who knew me in my younger years would could fathom probably that 
I've become the person I've become, particularly a brain geek. I love the brain. <laughs> I love all things neuroscience and learning about the brain. And so, you know, a lot of my ADHD heroes of Hallowell and Barkley and Ramsey, you know, there are CBT books out there for ADHD and they're all great, but they're all, many of them can be very clinical. And my own response to these, well, well, I understand this, but because I am a clinician, but so many of my clients when I, or in the earlier years of my profession that I would ask people to try some of these books or exercises, it wasn't as user-friendly as they needed it to be. And I think Rockridge Press, they, they were getting that feedback through the algorithms, like this type of book isn't wasn't existing out there in in the level that it needed to be and i wouldn't be the right person to write an extremely clinical type scientific book it's not while as much as i love you know learning you know the curiosity part of the brain of learning that information i know how important it was for me as a learner for it to be put in very user-friendly layman's terms. And I know that with my clients, and it's not because none of them are bright or couldn't understand the clinical perspective, but you can't be engaged that way. So, you know, thank you for saying that because my whole intent for the book was for people to feel like this was doable. Completely doable. And even more than doable, it's kind of fun. I think that we all love to know more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what you've provided is a step-by-step workbook, but it's not the kind of workbook where you have to start at the beginning and end at the end, which our brains don't do well with, right? You could go in anywhere. It doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. Any of these exercises, just this new level of awareness that you provide through these exercises, I think could be so incredibly helpful. Thank you. Okay. So I, I've gushed enough, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I really, really liked it though. And I I am a gusher when I really believe in things. When I don't <laughs> believe in things, not so much. I can be, you know, the person who's doing all the complaining. <laughs> I hear you. Um, but, you know, when things are done really well, I want to talk about it. So why do you think that CBT is one of the gold standards for managing ADHD? Because this is what your book is all about. It's, you know, CBT workbook. Yes. So I believe this, and and CBT has evolved over the years, you know, from when Aaron Beck first decided, you know, like this is, this is going to be this theoretical approach to therapy. It is now uh, includes mindfulness, acceptance and commitment therapy as a branch of CBT and, and having learned and trained in those modalities you know, when you put them all together, I, I, for me, I took what I believe suits the neurodiverse brain. And the heart of CBT is looking at our thoughts. Our thoughts impact our feelings and our feelings impact our actions and behaviors. And then those behaviors put us back in the thought cycle. And Many of us, if not all of us with ADHD, have a significant amount of thoughts. 
Yeah. And a lot of them, when not recognized earlier in life, are negative thoughts. And one of the best ways to make shifts or see change occur is to get to the thoughts and challenge them in a realistic way, not just slap on some flowery affirmation that doesn't feel real, but really look at, you know, is this thought, like I had said, like, I, I can't write, right? And, you know, I often say to my clients, when you're working with somebody who doesn't have ADHD and you do CBT, often part of the challenging process is saying, do you have proof or evidence to support this negative thought? And a good majority of the time they say, when they really look at it, they say no, right? They're just these assumptions that have been made. But when you speak with an individual with ADHD, (laughs) they've got proof, they've got evidence to support these thoughts. And so what I do is I ask my clients, but how old is that proof or evidence? How far back does that go? And once we start seeing that, wow, this this thought is from childhood, I can't do math, I can't do writing, mm-hmm. you know, that we we buy into these thoughts and we take them on. And then we go about our lives believing that these are things that we can't do. And as adults, you know, I help myself and my clients understand that this is an old thought. This is based on old experience. And we don't even know if that initial thought, I can't do math, I can't write well, was even true. Were you learn, Were you learning in the right atmosphere? Yeah. Schools to this day are not teaching neurodiverse children the way they need to be taught. And so it's really, I mean, I could get on my soapbox about this or write another book about how children are forced to be on medications to survive the school system. Yes. Um, Instead of changing the environment, right? Exactly. And, And the problem is that right now, the other alternative to some of the more progressive schools for neurodiversity, parents or families are afraid of because they say, well, my child's not that impacted. So there isn't this, no one feels like there's this middle place, you know, initially teachers are to teach to every child in the classroom and I'm, I, I, and I get it. I know this isn't a teacher issue. Mm-hmm. There are more kids in a classroom and the resources aren't there, particularly in the state of California. So, you know, I try to help my clients see that the fact that you think you can't do math may not be true. You just didn't learn math the way your brain is wired to learn. And so it is getting to those thoughts that I think are one of the most powerful things in seeing shifts occur in a person. You know, I completely agree with what you're saying. And it's interesting, but I decided, was it this year? I think it Yeah, I think it was this year I decided to go get retested. I was certain in the process of trying to get through my book that I must have dyslexia. And so my son had just been diagnosed with dyslexia, and I've always felt like I'm a strong writer, a creative writer, but I could not believe how much trouble I had organizing my thoughts. And I was like, could that partially, it could, is it just all ADHD or is there some dyslexia in there? You know, because it's just so difficult for me. So I went and 
I got retested. And this time I did the whole battery of, you know, neuropsych evaluation or testing. Mm -hmm. And I had so many of those thoughts, not just around writing. I, I remembered as a lawyer, you know, simple things where a partner would ask me to research X and I would research it. I would know exactly what it was that I thought needed to be said. But then when I went to go write it, it just was never good. And so I always felt that there was just something that was, you know, preventing me from really showing how bright I was when it came to writing. But like you, I also had these attitudes about math. I would make jokes. I'm Barbie. And I never really got bad math grades. You know, I was always kind mm -hmm. of in the B range. And then when I took trigonometry, I got the highest grade in the class. And I was, so in the back of my mind, I was always like, there's this juxtaposition, right? Of doing really, really well and not doing so great and really not enjoying math. And so the beauty of getting tested was, I also thought I had really bad working memory. So I got myself tested and all of these things that I thought were just not true. But literally, since I was a child, I had been telling myself these stories or creating these stories because there were instances where, yeah, for whatever reason, I wasn't good and I didn't understand why. So I absolutely hear what you're saying. And that is honestly, and I know we're going to talk more um, about getting a proper ADHD diagnosis, but why these diagnoses where, you know, you show up and, oh, I don't know, they give you one test, checklist, Screener. basically, yep. and then they, you know, write a prescription for medication, why ugh, the testing needs to be so much more, obviously, if you can afford it, the testing needs to be so much um, broader yes. because there is so much to learn about yourself through it. So I, I hear you. I kind of went on a tangent, but I was afraid that I would forget by the time, you know, I got to my question about the diagnoses and how to get a proper <laughs> one. So thank you for, for letting me um, share that. Sure. So if you could tell someone with ADHD only one important skill or strategy, what would it be? Lean in. Uh, and tell what, us more. So... Inherently, the ADHD brain, the neurodiverse brain, avoids discomfort at all costs. And particular, there's some discomforts we're okay with, and but there are those when there's something that feels really uncomfortable. We procrastinate, we avoid, we do whatever we can possibly do to put it off until we can no longer put it off. And or some people just don't ever get around to it. And I believe that teaching the brain, training the brain to get comfortable with being uncomfortable is when you're going to see change happen. I could teach the tips and the tricks and the strategies all day long, but they're not going to stick if someone isn't ready to get uncomfortable. Kristen, that is so brilliant. And it made me think of the, um, oh gosh, what do I call these? Do you uh, exercise? I was going to say strategy, but the exercise that you have, I have never heard this before. And I was literally sitting on my couch doing it, choosing to hold your breath. Yes. Can you talk about that? I love this. So, you know, there are many ways to get uncomfortable, um, but breath, you know, is this thing that we feel we can control, right? We're, we're doing it all day long without thinking about it. 
But the second someone asks you to hold your breath, many of us start to become uncomfortable. And so it is one of the easiest, quickest ways to start to explore those feelings of discomfort and what comes up. Where does our mind go? What are we telling ourselves in this place of discomfort? And we'll learn a lot from our own brain as to what what messages am I receiving? And these are messages that are there, that have been there. And are the messages that come up when we face discomfort, whether they're loud and clear or not, they're there. Like the brain says, I know what's coming. And so no way, not going to happen. For these reasons, these experiences, these somatic and thought discomforts that we have uh, are temporary. You know, like withholding our breath, we know at some point we can breathe again. We can exhale. And that's what leaning in is about. It is being in a place of discomfort, but understanding that it's very temporary. Um, You know, when I worked in substance abuse as an intern, they call it riding uh, urge surfing. Right. So, and I teach my clients this as well. It's like, think of your discomfort as a wave. Like any place of discomfort or wave, it builds up, right? It has, the wave has its peak and its top at its most significant, highest intensity, and then crashes to shore and goes out to sea and is gone. So, understanding that level of discomfort that we're experiencing is temporary. And the more we can do it, I always am preaching yoga left and right to clients. Most people with ADHD say, no, it's too slow. It's too quiet. Or I won't do meditation or mindfulness. It's too quiet. It's too slow. I'm not comfortable sitting in quiet without movement. And that's when I say, that is the very reason why you should be sitting in that quiet, why you should be doing yoga. It doesn't have to be slow yoga, but get your brain comfortable with being uncomfortable because the more you expose it to that, like exposure therapy 101, the less intensity it has over you. Because you're changing your brain, right? Exactly. Literally. Yes. Yes. The neuroplasticity, our brain is malleable. It's plastic. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Um, and it gets we, less and less uncomfortable over time, the more you do it. Exactly. And neurofeedback is the same process. It is training the brain to little by little experience these phases of discomfort. And over time, it opens up wider, right? To like the gate gets bigger and bigger of like, okay, I'm okay with this. You know, the feedback loop is, the, the discomfort you're experiencing when when you're when you're in newer feedback and anxiety or something pops up, all the machine does is recognize whoop, anxiety, fight flight. Your brain is in this alert mode, and what what the programs do is feed back that exact sensation back to the brain, like oh alert, how are you going to handle this? And the brain decides, I'm either going to handle it or I'm not depending on the type of neurofeedback that you do. But 
ultimately, that is what we're training ourselves in mindfulness, meditation, yoga, in leaning in, is little by little exposing ourselves to the discomforts so that over time, it doesn't have that level of discomfort anymore. Thank you. So I want to talk about, I want you to find two exercises in this book. The first one that I want to ask you about mm -hmm. is, which of all these exercises is the one that you pull out the most with your clients? Or maybe I should make it a little easier. One of the most. Okay. Okay. Dealing with perfectionism. Mm. Um, can you talk about that? And can you explain the exercise? Yes. So majority of individuals, I don't like to make blanket statements, but most people with ADHD experience perfectionism. And they experience it in, in ways or in areas that one might not suspect, right? Like some might say, oh, how can I be perfectionistic when I'm not organized or not this or not that? Right. But the majority of the, those of us with ADHD have creative intelligence. And that creative part of our brain wants perfectionism. And Talk, even as wait, athletes. Wait, one second. So um, when you say creative intelligence, we mm -hmm. have creative intelligence. What do you mean by that? So because of uh, the, the wiring of most individuals with ADHD and even neurodiversity, that part of the brain, the creative left brain, is stronger. It's like that muscle is a little stronger than some of the other areas, particularly compared to others or our peers. We see things differently. And a lot of that comes from the attention surplus, not deficit, but surplus that yeah, we have. Okay. Right? We see, feel, sense everything all at the same time. But which is why we when, make, can make all those connections, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the brain is seeing and, and is experiencing the environment in a way that most other people don't. And because of our problem-solving strength, you marry the two and the brain comes up with creative thinking. We're just creative thinkers. We think outside the box. But when we think outside the box, particularly if it's something we're passionate about, we can get to this level of trying to perfect it because there's so many areas in our life we feel we don't have or have control over. When we do things that we know we do well, we tend to assert too much control and we get into hyper-focus and perfectionism as a result. I know when I was creating uh, one of my websites earlier on in my career, I got stuck on trying to find the perfect green. I went through the entire Pantone list of greens and went down a serious perfectionistic rabbit hole in finding the right shade of green. When at the end of the day, no one would have known that no one would have looked at my website and said, boy, she picked the wrong green. I could so relate to this. So the things that we care about, we really, really, really care about to the point yes. where we are annoying to correct, you know, others. Correct. Okay. And it, but it, it can roadblock us from getting things done, right? 
I spent too much time finding the perfect shade of green when I should have been working on content and other things. And so when we are doing these things, we feel we are doing well, our inner critic comes up and it's very loud and it tells us, you know, this isn't good enough. It can be better. And a lot of that, again, coming from this other idea, other areas where we feel we fail or fall short. So the first thing I do is kind of do uh, one of the exercises for perfectionism in here is just gaining an understanding of perfectionism. When am I being perfectionistic? And some of the questions might be, I often think that I should have done better than I did. I need to have time to do tasks perfectly or I will put them off. When working on an important project, I have fears of failure or success, meaning there's going to be expectations of more. If I fail, I fear others will think less of me. I might think less of me. I'm consistently working on self-improvement. I become unhappy if my accomplishments are considered average. I just realized I did that one. (laughs) Yep. And so that, you know, just gaining awareness of the perfectionism is important, right? There, a lot of people might see it as OCD, right? This term gets thrown around a lot. And what it really is, is OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality, um, meaning perfectionism. There are certain things in our life, particularly those of us with ADHD, that we put 200% in. And most of the time, because of our executive function system, we're already working more than 100%. So our good enough is someone else's 100%. So I teach my clients to, to take on the mantra of it's great enough. Because we've already gone above and beyond just at base level. I love that. With some of these things. So, you know, it's really important to recognize most people, most neurotypical individuals function, they say, particularly in the workplace, you're lucky if you get 70% output out of the neurotypical population, not the ADHD population you're always getting at least 100%. It might not look like it because we're struggling with certain skills of the executive function system or there's no interest or passion behind what we're doing, but our brain is always working. That is so fascinating. And it totally hits home what I say all the time that corporations, businesses, school systems, we are leaving so much on the table because of these systems that are set up that you have to do things a certain way. And so because of that, people with ADHD can't get through the hurdles and they are likely some of the best performers if you find them in an area where they have a lot of interest. That's right. Did that even make sense? Yes, it did. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it just frustrates me to no end. Um, I would love to know more about that statistic. Um, And it doesn't surprise me at all. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, I like to find 
some of this information because it's very validating to hear and why we're so depleted at the end of many days, right? Because this, this is a brain that is nonstop. The hamster wheel is going. The flights of ideas are constant. And then, you know, we try to attach to these things thinking, oh, I had this great idea. And then we try to pursue them. And then when we don't finish them or don't pursue them, we're really hard on ourselves. And so I tell people, whip out a little idea book. That's what I do. I write and just understand that sometimes an idea is just an idea. That's all that it is. You don't have to necessarily pursue every brilliant idea that comes to your mind. Just let it be an idea. Mm-hmm. You know, this This makes me think about, um, oh, I don't know. This was probably a day or two ago. I have um, a good friend who is a brilliant psychologist, and um, she's just been such a source of support over this Mm -hmm. past year. And so I sent her a gift, and I didn't hear from her for two days. But, you know, I, I mean, I totally forgot I had sent the gift, and she sent me a message, an audio clip, and she apologized. And she said to me, she, she has ADHD as well, and she apologized, and she said, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I was so taken by your gift. I loved it so much. And so my thank you had to be absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you can relate to that. I yes. can totally relate to that. Yes. And so I'll have, you know, people sending me messages. Did you get the gift? Did you get the gift? And I'm like, yeah, I got the gift, but I, and then I feel bad, right? Because I just wanted to make sure that the thank you was so perfect and I didn't have time right then and there to say thank you. And so I wanted to think about it. I wanted to make it really good. And then I forgot about it and it dragged on. And then I forgot to say thank you, you know? Yes. It's often why we don't respond to texts or emails right away. Yeah. Right. We're not ignoring, but, you know, we generally tend to put a lot of thought sometimes to our own detriment into how we might want to respond. But on the reverse, sometimes we're just going to blurt stuff out. Right. Right. So there's the inconsistency again. Yeah. Okay. That was really good. Okay. So the second exercise that I want you to talk about is what is the one exercise in here that you just feel was super creative and you're so proud of it because it's different? That is a good question. I'm asking you really hard questions right on the spot. And I know how the ADHD brain works, right? You want to make sure you've got the perfect response. Um, Accomplishment reflection. What page is that on? 71. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well positive emotion. So one of the reasons why I'm proud of this is, and it's interesting, out of all the tips and strategies out there, you don't hear enough about this. Most of us with ADHD don't take the win. We're already on to the next thing or we're behind and catching up. So we can't take in Oh, I finished this and I did a really great job on it. And it felt great because we're worried about the thing that's in front of us. And that does a great disservice to our brain because if we are not recognizing our accomplishments, then we've got nothing in reserve. There's nothing in the tank to be there when we want to do the next difficult task. 
There's nothing to pull up to say, oh, remember when I was faced with this and then I had this thing that I did and I was I was satisfied with how it felt. Satisfied as much as someone with ADHD can be satisfied, but satisfied enough to a level of like that went well. I, I finished it. I'm happy with the way it turned out. Happy enough. It's great enough. And let me just soak in that experience, like really feel that level of accomplishment. And let me store this positive feeling. So it's there for me the next time I get a case of the I don't want us. I love it. I love it. I coined a phrase that I call post-final depression because I noticed in college, you know, when exams were over and, you know, I had planned with my friends, we were going to do this, we were going to do that. And finals would be over. They would be all excited, whoop, whooping it up. And I'd be like, next, you know, what's the next thing that I can do? Like I did not know how to celebrate anything. Nothing was ever good enough. I did the same thing when I finished this book. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like it didn't, and to be honest, I'm not even sure it's still completely sunk in yet. Um. And I was the same way with graduate school. I finished graduate school and I was like, what else can I sign up for? Like, what's next? I did every training. I have so many certifications under my name because I couldn't get enough. Right. Right. And so that's the information junkie is sort of in me and the curiosity. But I often said to myself, where was that learner 20, 30 years ago? Yeah. Right. Like, fortunately, you know, a lot of it was, unless it was a subject I was passionate about, as I'm sure everyone can relate to, and if, or that even if it was a subject I wasn't passionate about, but I had a great teacher who was passionate about it, then I did really well. And so I think that's why most people like myself tend to perform well in college or postgraduate degrees because you're doing, if you're going to school for something you know you really like and do well, you're going to have a very positive learning experience. Absolutely. We see it all the time, you know, struggling, 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 barely getting through high school, almost flunking out of college. And then they end up being the valedictorian once they're in grad school. Yes. And so it's important to take that on, you know, and I had to remind myself, even when the book was over, like, I did this, like, I did it. I'm not even concerned about whether it was great enough or not. It was just, I wrote a book and I still kind of have to remind myself of like, this is a task I inherently thought I would never be able to do. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say to people, if, if. Someone with ADHD can write a book. There's no telling what any one of us can do. We all have that power within us. It's, it is, you know, I leaned in. I have gotten very comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think initially that is what helped motivate me to make this happen. Yeah. And it generates so much positive emotion. And then you start feeling really good about yourself because you realize that there is nothing that you can't do, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. You have more belief in yourself 
that you can do it. And it's not a false, you know, yeah, with ADHD, there's always a sense of taking a risk. And sometimes that's good. It's what makes us very good entrepreneurs. But you become, and I know there are those who are very risk adversive, but it's all down to the power of our thinking of, it's not about, you have to ask yourself, it's not ability or capability. It's generally, back to CBT, what am I telling myself? What have I been telling myself? What have I been buying into what others have told me for such a long time? Are these thoughts really true? Because and then as when you, you prove, say, go yeah, on, you prove them wrong. When you prove them wrong, then you realize like, no, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And then what you just said about how, okay, the neurotypical, their output is about 70%. You know, we, our output is always 100% plus. Yes. So it makes sense that we would be really good at the things that we lean in on. That's right. I love it. Okay. Last question. Well, and then I have one more, but I want to talk about the difficulty in getting a proper ADHD diagnosis. You know, it's interesting that um, you're here because this is the part of my book that I'm in right now and that I'm writing. And I, I just basically threw my hands up with my editor and I said, you know what? I don't even know if I want to talk about this because it is such a mess. You yes. can get a really good kind of gold standard diagnoses with all the tests and the interviews and, you know, neuropsych evaluation, or you can literally go online and set up an appointment with someone you've never met, right? And yep. walk away with a diagnosis. It is a mess. And depending on what state you're in, there's all kinds of different rules about medication. And where do you start? What do you do? So, this is a particular hot topic lately because, you know, it is, I frequently have clients who've either come to me with a diagnosis or who've been told don't have ADHD and in fact have ADHD. I think it's missed more often than it's missed diagnosed, um, particularly in adulthood. But it's important to remember and that- particularly because, in women. Yes, very much so. That an MD and a PhD initials don't necessarily qualify someone to give you an ADHD diagnosis. That doesn't automatically say that they're trained in this, right? In medical school, they might get like a couple hour workshop on ADHD and that's it. Unless that particular medical professional went to extra training outside of school mm -hmm and has keeping up to date with the ever-changing um, diagnostic criteria, the more we learn about the brain, um, that ADHD is. Like most of the screeners, especially for adults, are based off the diagnostic manual, the DSM. And the DSM is not accurate. And those of us uh, specialists and experts in the field of ADHD, we all know this, we're all aware, we're all extremely frustrated and trying to find ways to change it. Um, ADHD should be put on a spectrum, like autism. So I encourage people to, one, make sure that they have the ADHD training certification, which is the ADHD CCSP. That is 40 plus hours 
of extensive training about ADHD, what it is, what it isn't. And it's been several years since I've done that training. I have an associate intern who's done it recently and some other people have done it recently. And I'm, I'm hearing, while it's very good, it's sounding like it could use a few more updates as well. Um, like I said, because the, the, the criteria keeps evolving. But you want to make sure that, you know, a psychiatrist, in my opinion, and I hope I don't receive flack for this, but if you get a diagnosis within 15, 20 minutes, they haven't done the due diligence when it comes to ADHD. You cannot, unless you're an ADD or someone like myself who kind of has that spidey sense of being able to spot it, you know, when you've got it, you spot it. But even myself, even if I suspect within the first five minutes of meeting a client ADHD, I do an hour and a half intake and then a few assessments after the intake and the diagnostic interview, we call it, of just gathering information from childhood on to get a full understanding of what this person's experiencing. And, you know, the other thing is, that is it trauma? Um, Is it anxiety? Is it depression? That's the other part of ADHD um, always has a passenger. It never travels alone. And so sometimes people get diagnosed with depression when in fact it's just situational as a result of untreated and undiagnosed ADHD. So there's so many nuances to getting a a full accurate diagnosis. And so you want to make sure that you do thorough research on just how well-trained a person is. And it's hard to know that initially going in, but, you know, if you're going on like psychology today and you see ADHD under the specialties of like 15 other things, Mm. don't go there. You know, it is not, you want someone who's very specific to the neurodiversity. You want to look for words of neurodiversity. They, they understand ADHD, they understand autism because they're so related and it is not a diagnosis that you should be given within one short meeting. If you do a 45 minute intake with a psychiatrist and you fill out a bunch of paperwork, that's a little better, but in my opinion, it's still not enough. Yeah. I don't know how you would go through all of that in 45 minutes. Mm -mm. And then the answer shouldn't be, here's your prescription, right? There should be a conversation about these are your options. And why don't you explore your options? I think they should be saying you should explore alternative options before looking at a prescription, unless somebody is in severe state of crisis with their ADHD, like they're failing school or they're going to lose their job, then they should be able to discuss the prescription and therapy or coaching or whatnot to go alongside it because pills don't teach skills. Yep. Makes all the sense in the world. Thank you so much for that. So Mm -hmm. before I let you go, let me think, what question do I want to ask of you? What are the traits, the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? 
my drive, my creative thinking, and my empathy. Mm. And do you have an ADHD workaround that you lean on, lean into every day? <laughs> um, I do. I, you know, self-compassion is probably the way I start each morning. I was also someone, when I first went through mindfulness training, I really struggled. Um, I, or at least I thought I wasn't doing it right because my mind, right, you get an opportunity to, to sit and be still and be quiet and the mind just goes. And the body, you start feeling all these body sensations. And because we are sensitive individuals in all regards, we feel not just emotionally, but physically, we feel more than those without ADHD. And so a lot of those sensations are uncomfortable. And I remember thinking like, I don't think I'm practicing mindfulness right now because my mind is going a mile a minute. I'm planning, I'm to-doing, I'm creating. And I learned that this just that's part of the process. That's Our minds do that right? Specifically, mindfulness isn't about, you know, trying to find enlightenment, so to speak, or being in this absolute blank state. It is just being okay with the thoughts. You know, you, you, I use my breath as my anchor. And I usually start each morning, not every morning, but, you know, I write down my thoughts, my to-dos, my planning. I get all of that out of my brain. I do that brain dump. Just get it out. And then, you know, I, I follow a specific um, breath meditation called Sky. And my mind will wander even during that. But I will finish with the last five minutes of, you know, my own self-reflection of finding one thing that I'm grateful for about myself for the day and offering myself kindness because we tend to beat ourselves up a lot about the things that we aren't doing. And so I try to regularly practice that loving kindness and it feels hokey and it feels weird. And, and I remember in graduate school hearing about all this and, and thinking the same thing, like, Oh, that's just a little too hippy dippy for me. And, um, but the more I practice it, the more I really understood how valuable it truly is specifically for neurodiversity. You know, it's interesting. I think it's that drivenness and the boom, boom, boom. Let's just get things done. Right. Yes. Yes. That, yes. I, cause I had the same thoughts. What, what's this hippy dippy woo woo? Like, I'm not yes. going to do that. I can't even sit still, but oh, it's so, it's even more important. I think for, for our brains. Yes. And when I learned about the science behind it. Yes, exactly. That is what did it for me. Because my mind, you know, I was an architecture. Like my mind goes to the, what is the problem? What is the solution? Um, is why CBT became, was so natural for me as an approach with the mindfulness. You know, like mindful CBT incorporates all of that at the same time. And, and I think there is evidence to support that. And many of us have brains of, we need proof. Um, and there's a ton out there. There's so much science behind mindfulness. Absolutely. Kristen, um, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? 
I am. So I was at the Chad International ADHD Conference in November, Mm -hmm. and I was speaking with a woman uh, there who uh, had read my book and loved it. And she said, you know, is there going to be like an audio version or, or, you know, like, because um, she said, some of us are better with hearing this rather than reading it. And I was like, you know, you're, I can't believe I didn't even think of that. You're absolutely right. So I'm going to be working on creating a podcast series that I will sort of do these exercises in the podcast as a guided way of the support system of, you know, for people who picking up a book brings up stuff for them, or that is not how they learn or ingest information. So I'm going to be creating uh, my version, not, you know, it's exercises that I created for the book, but it's not an audio version of the book because it is a workbook. Um, so what you're saying is, each episode of the podcast, you will go into one of these strategies or exercises. Correct. Yeah. Ah, really smart. I could totally see how that would lend itself to um, an audio version. And you have a great voice, so you should absolutely do it. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> you so, know, from someone who was born in Philadelphia, that was one of my... I used to have a very strong Philadelphia accent. I've been in California over 20 years. but Yeah, I don't hear it. I don't hear it at all. So, thank you. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more about, um, your new podcast and of course what you do? So my center and clinical, uh, psychotherapy center and ADHD center is in Los Angeles, California. My website is Baird, B-A-I-R-D, integratedtherapy.com. And it also leads you to my neurofeedback website as well. And the website explains our approach or philosophy. I am an integrative mental health clinician, meaning, you know, I will talk about diet and exercise and sleep and supplements and ways to manage your ADHD in a a more natural approach, either with or without medication. I'm not opposed to medication. They definitely have their place. And the podcasts will get released hopefully in the first quarter of the new year, um, on the website. I'll be honest, I am not big of social media. I just got um, a virtual assistant, um, thank God. Yes. And she is helping me, you know, develop a presence on Instagram, at uh, which is the ADHD guru. Wonderful. Kristen, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. This was so valuable. I really appreciate you. Thank you. And I appreciate you, Tracy. I'm, I'm, I'm an avid listener um, and it's exciting to share all of this with you and your listeners today. Wonderful. Before I leave you, just a quick reminder, the doors for our first ever January, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, are open. And if you want to save $100, use the code New Year 23. You can go to tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK for more information. I would love to have you join us. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Kristen, please let us know by leaving a review. 
Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.